Good evening. Texas Democrats make a run for it. Greg Palace on the threat to the vote. Fighting escalates into rebellion in Colombia and the truth behind the decision to ban cops from the Heritage of Pride parade. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, May 31st, 2021. Memorial Day. President Joe Biden honored America's war dead at Arlington National Cemetery today, Memorial Day, by laying a wreath at the hallowed burial ground and extolling the sacrifices of the fallen for the pursuit of democracy. He called it the soul of America. The president was joined by First Lady Jill Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, and Second Gentleman Doug Emhoff in a somber ceremony at the Virginia Cemetery's Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. The monument is dedicated to unidentified warriors who are lost in war. Biden walked up to the wreath, cupping it in his hands in silent reflection, then making the sign of the cross. In his remarks, Biden called on Americans to commemorate their fallen heroes by remembering their fight for the nation's ideals. Uh, Biden was preceded by Joint Chiefs of Staff Chair General Mark Milley and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. They fought for the belief that under these colors of red, white and blue, all of us are Americans, and we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and all women are created equal. It's my honor to introduce the 28th United States Secretary of Defense, Lloyd J. Austin III. Mr. President, in thinking about joining you here today, I reflected on a meeting I held a few days ago with some of our gold star and surviving families. One of them was Shannon Slutman, the wife of a Marine reservist. They have three children. Her husband, Chris, was killed by a suicide bomber on April 8, 2019, in Bagram, Afghanistan. The first thing that she said in our meeting was simply, I'm going to try not to cry. And today, Staff Sergeant Chris Slutman rests here in Arlington in Section 60, alongside so many of his brothers and sisters in arms who made the ultimate sacrifice in action in this longest of American wars. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. If every person is sacred, then every person's rights are sacred. Individual dignity, individual worth, individual sanctity, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We say those words so often, but think of it. The right to vote, the right to rise in a world as far as your talent can take you, that we may find the light and the wisdom and, yes, the courage to move forward in the words of that great hymn. Fight as they nobly fought of old. May we now dedicate our souls that our work may prove worthy of the blood of our fallen. For this work, the work of democracy, is the work of our time and for all time. And if we do our duty, then ages still to come will look back on us and say that we too kept the faith. And there's nothing more important, nothing more sacred, nothing more American than keeping the faith. 
And God bless the United States of America. And may the light perpetually shine upon the fallen. The Bidens held hands and strolled along the rows of iconic white gravestones at Arlington, stopping to chat with several families visiting the graves of their loved ones. One family came to find a great uncle missing in action from the World War. Meanwhile, Americans fled their pandemic doldrums over the three-day holiday weekend that traditionally marks the start of summer. About half the country is vaccinated against the coronavirus. The biggest commemoration, the National Memorial Day Parade in Washington, is returning at a much smaller size. It was held online last year. Instead of a traditional parade on Constitution Avenue before 100,000 spectators, the march was filmed on May 3rd on the National Mall with no onlookers and will be blended with other taped performers in a special television program. And the Staten Island, in Staten Island, uh, that place was that, that borough, the borough of Staten Island, was set to have one of the country's relatively few live and in-person parades today with floats and marching bands. Holiday travel is expected to jump by 60%, with 37 million people expected to travel 50 miles or more away from home. And as President Biden and and, uh, many past presidents have more or less eloquently said on Memorial Day, the men and women buried in Arlington made sacrifices so the rest can take freedom for granted. One of the most important freedoms overlooked by so many until recent events is the right to vote for our leaders. In Texas last night, Democrats walked out of the Texas House in an organized protest to kill a voter suppression bill, making it easier to overturn an election. At about 10.45 p.m., the last remaining Democrats needed to keep a quorum of 100 members streamed out of the chamber. There are 86 A's, zero nays. The motion to excuse fails for lack of quorum. Speaker. Mr. Tenno, for a purpose. Parliamentary inquiry. Please state your inquiry. We take an oath at the beginning of session and we collect per diem per day to be here on the House look to do our job on behalf of almost 30 million Texans. Am I seeing that we don't have a quorum and essentially it looks to me like the democrats left the house floor and they're neglecting their duty that they swore an oath to make, to do mr tenderhold that's not a proper parliamentary inquiry not every person left the floor is part of a party or not thank you mr speaker the walkout was a last ditch effort to block passage of one of the most restrictive voting bills in the united states the fight isn't over though texas governor greg abbott says he'll call a special session of the legislature to force through the bill If passed, the Texas law would allow partisan poll watchers uh, to take an oath not to impede or intimidate voters, but not under penalty of perjury, while assisting voters with disabilities would require swearing an oath under threat of criminal charges. The law would also allow an election to be overturned, even if there was no proven incident of fraud. Journalist Greg Pallas has been following the spate of GOP-influenced voter intimidation laws that have cropped up since the last election and former President Donald Trump's false allegation the election was stolen. Pallas says the Democrats are just buying time. 
Democrats tried this once before, where they tried to stop a gerrymander of the state's uh, congressional delegation, and they literally left the state for months. They lived outside the state, the legislators, because the Texas GOP literally called in the Texas Rangers to go arrest Democratic members of the legislature, bring them in, like in chains, to force a quorum. After a couple of months, the Democrats finally returned, creating the quorum. The Democratic delegation was crushed. If you let Texans vote and you stop gerrymandering them, it's a deep blue state. It's not even a purple state. It's a blue state. Are the Republicans going to sweep back in uh, next year? I hate to say it. Remember that 20 was the year of the census. And almost no one noticed that Trump really jacked with the census. He cut it off early. This is the middle of COVID. So you couldn't have the door-to-door canvassers, which are necessary for a lot of the urban areas. You don't have the really poor rural African-American response. When you go into places like Louisiana and Georgia with unincorporated black townships, they're not being picked up in the census. This is allowing the GOP, which controls something like more than 30 state legislatures to redraw the lines for both state legislatures, but most important for the congressional delegations. I think it's going to be nearly impossible to stop the flip of four seats, which is all you need to depose the Democrats. The jacking with the census combined with this is the year of redistricting, and it's going to be ugly, ugly, ugly. What about the federal bill? Does that have a chance? Well, the federal bill is a 900-page, you know, miracle throw everything against the wall. I don't see it happening unless it's cut way back. Reverend Senator Warnock is working on a cutback of the bill in hopes that he can then convince Cinema and Mansion to allow the breaking of the filibuster, which is the only way it passes. You have to break the filibuster. It would be very helpful, but it's not a magic bullet. We saw this in 2002 with the Help America Vote Act, and the Congressional Black Caucus backed it, and everyone thought, oh, this is going to save us after the removal of what I discovered, the phony felon purge of Florida, which elected George Bush. But the Republicans slipped stuff into these bills, as Karl Rove did in 2002. Help America Vote Act became the hinder. American Voting Act. I don't think that the federal legislation is a magic bullet. The only thing you can do is overwhelm the steel, get people to the polls, as we saw in Georgia, against a massive attack on the voting and voter rolls. What's the answer? We can't win by voting, so let's take take the government? You can win by voting. Register, check your registration so you're not purged before, to make sure you're not purged before an election, and vote or mail in that vote, and make sure your ballot's been actually counted. If you get a provisional ballot, go make sure that it gets counted. Take the steps to get your vote counted. So register, check your registration, vote, and then make sure your vote is counted. You do those four steps, which is what happened in Georgia. The people... Not the gerrymander, not Jim Crow win. Journalist Greg Pallast. In related news, today marks 100 years since the Tulsa massacre, where white mobs attacked a neighborhood known as the Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, burning stores and homes, killing as many as 300 black residents. Meanwhile, the walkout at the Texas state legislature is distracting from the state's disastrous response to winter storms earlier this year. The power grid collapsed and at least 151 people died of everything from bitter cold to carbon monoxide poisoning from jury-rigged emergency generators. Republicans shifted the emphasis to a law banning abortions, lifting gun restrictions and mandating the state's the Star-Spangled Banner in schools. 
letting the natural gas industry, who raked in billions of dollars from Texans suffering, off the hook. And in international news, a coalition bridging far-right and moderate Israeli politicians is closer today to unseating longtime Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. On Sunday, Naftali Bennett, head of a small hardline nationalist party, said he would work with more mainstream opposition leaders to save the country from a tailspin and return Israel to its course. Netanyahu is Israel's longest-serving prime minister, having held office since 2009. He's held on to power despite being indicted on charges of fraud, breach of trust, and accepting bribes in 2019. And meanwhile, security for members of the anti-Netanyahu coalition, including judges and prosecutors in the corruption case against him, have been assigned bodyguards and extra security. In Colombia, authorities are investigating 10 police officers who allowed civilians to shoot at demonstrators in Cali, the South American country's third largest city. In one video on Twitter, dozens of masked, shield-carrying student protesters were cheered on as they left school to confront police. Bitter protests against the economic policies of of the government of President Ivan Duque have been ongoing for more than a month. More than 20 protesters have been killed by police backing up heavily armed vigilantes. Kali has become epicenter for protests. An associate professor of political science at the National University of Columbia in Medellin is Forrest Hilton. He says the country is being rocked by a mass insurgency. He joins WBAI from Medellin. The best way to summarize it is that it's a nationwide insurrection that's led by young people, mostly without jobs or education of the, or the prospect of either who live in peripheral urban neighborhoods that lack basic services and don't have enough transport. And a lot of these people are not getting enough to eat since the pandemic hit. Basic survival is what's at stake for the majority of the people who are out protesting. And in addition to all these young working class people from the urban peripheries, there is an enormous number of young middle class people who are in pretty precarious circumstances as well. So the youth have been leading the uprising, but it goes far beyond youth and encompasses just about every major social movement and political organization, progressive political organization in Colombia. Are there any specific goals to this insurrection, as you called it? The first goal was to repeal the regressive tax reform package, which they successfully did. The second goal was to repeal the regressive health reform package, which they successfully did. And they also forced the resignation of two ministers. But what they're asking for is the disbanding of the riot police, a reorientation of the national budget away from military spending and towards spending on domestic social welfare provisions and institutions like health and education, housing, jobs, transport, and so forth. They're trying to orient Colombia's economy and politics away from war and away from neoliberalism towards something else that would look like social democracy in line with the 1991 Constitution. President Duque, what's his reaction been to this? He has been refusing to negotiate or dialogue with the demonstrators 
and the strategy has been to try to label the demonstrators who are overwhelmingly unarmed and nonviolent to label them as vandalists and terrorists who threaten the social order so that he can unleash ferocious police repression against them, which is exactly what's happened, much of it under the cover of night. And now he has sent soldiers to 13 different cities in eight different departments throughout the country in order to further militarize the conflict as opposed to sitting down and negotiating in good faith. What does militarizing the conflict mean? What have they been doing? They have been sending soldiers to patrol urban streets. Soldiers have not been called out to the streets. That's been a police problem and a riot police problem until now. And now they have soldiers with automatic weapons patrolling the streets. 7,000 of them are currently in the city of Cali, which has been the epicenter of the protest. And has that led to shootings and all the deaths we've heard about? So far, the shootings have not come from the guns of soldiers in most of the cities, but the soldiers have just been sent to cities in the last couple of days because the murders that took place on Friday, that was a combination of police and civilians firing their weapons alongside the police and coordinating with the police. And again, we emphasize that they're firing live ammunition on unarmed demonstrators and they're killing, disappearing them. There's a number of bodies and number of people whose whereabouts are unknown. Who are these private citizens who are joining in with the police? Members of wealthy neighborhoods who see potential attacks on their persons and property coming out of these mobilizations. That hasn't happened, but these wealthy and propertyed citizens have staged preventive attacks against unarmed demonstrators alongside the police. And they not only have pistols, but they have semi-automatic weapons, rifles, AR-15s. Colombia has a long history of parastate actors participating alongside those who are inflicting state terror against unarmed civilians. How has the U.S. been responding? The U.S. response has been muted so far. There's a number of congressmen and women led by Representative Jim McGovern who are calling for the application of the Leahy provision of foreign aid bills in order to stop the flow of funding and weaponry to the police and the armed forces in Colombia as long as these human rights violations and crimes against humanity are going on. The United Nations, as well as the Inter-American Human Rights Commission, have been demanding independent investigations into the violence that's going on on the part of police against citizens. But the Colombian government so far has not allowed the Inter-American Human Rights Commission in to investigate. There's a movement within Congress to try to get something done about this, but the rhetoric from the Biden administration has been muted and the general response has been to condemn violence on all sides. But the problem with that is that the violence is overwhelmingly one-sided against unarmed demonstrators. Anything you would like to add? In the midst of the tragedy that's ongoing, there's hundreds of disappeared people who are probably being tortured and murdered because that's been the pattern in the past in Colombia's history in spite of terrible darkness which has overtaken Colombia. And that's literal because the worst act of repression are taking place at night. Nevertheless, there's a lot of hope and inspiration to be taken from this uprising in Colombia. In fact, throughout South America, we've seen national popular uprisings against neoliberalism and against militarized repression. Colombia has long been one of the most conservative countries in the hemisphere, and 
to see this kind of nationwide uprising led by young people is truly inspiring. Forrest Hilton is an associate professor of political science at the National University of Columbia in Medellin. On Sunday, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, called for those responsible for the violence in Cali to be held responsible. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Earlier this month, the Heritage of Pride group that organized each year's New York City LGBTQ Pride March announced they would no longer allow uniformed cops to march in the parade as part of the Gay Officers Action League. Mayor de Blasio said earlier this week it was a bad decision. Look, I fully appreciate the extraordinary history of pride in this city and, you know, so much meaning, so much history, and I honor what pride has achieved over the years. I think that decision is a mistake. First of all, we have to keep people safe and it's been an incredibly safe, positive event and we have to be mindful of continuing that. Second of all, you know, I believe in inclusion and we're talking about one of the issues is officers who are members of the LGBT community wanting to march and express their pride and their solidarity to the community and their desire to keep changing the NYPD and changing the city. Uh, that's something I think should be embraced. Mayor de Blasio, an organizer for the Progressive Reclaim Pride Coalition March is J.W. Walker. He says a new heritage board wants to make the march more attractive to people of color. The, the leadership of Heritage of Pride has decided to pay attention to the concerns of, of poorer, more working class, uh, browner, more trans New Yorkers than the prior leadership did. The last year of the racial reckoning that we've been having after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery last year has, has had an impact. Just the overall change in the leadership, the newer leadership of Heritage of Pride, which has come on, I guess, over the last couple of years, is certainly more responsive to those concerns than the leadership that was in place three summers ago. What brought the police in and what changed? There really seemed to be a significant shift during the Giuliani administration. The numbers of police present along the parade route seemed to markedly increase. The use of the French-style bike rack barricades, those began under Giuliani. That kind of closed off participation from onlookers in the parade. So that was a, a shift uh, along with the over-policing of the end point of the parade, the West Village area, and the over-barricading are all around that area west of 7th Avenue. A lot of members of the community started stepping back from participating in Pride because of just the sort of overwhelming police presence that then only grew after 9-11, supposedly of protecting people from a possible terrorist attack. All of that over-barricading actually made people less safe because in the event of a terrorist attack, the people in the immediate area of that terrorist attack would have been hemmed in by interlocking metal barricades and unable to escape. Is there as much controversy as I'm seeing definitely is a schism within our LGBTQIA2S communities. It does tend to break along both racial and ethnic lines and along age lines. And a part of that is that goal 
seems to have deliberately muddied the waters by coming out with their statement before Heritage of Pride had the opportunity to even announce the executive board's decision to their membership. They informed Goal of their decision and Goal immediately went out with a press release and a statement that made it seem as though Goal was being banned as an organization from the Pride Parade when that actually isn't the case. What the apparently the organizers of HOP did is they went to Goal and they said, listen, we're like thinking about the concerns about safety, about comfort of a lot of members of our community, a lot of black and brown and trans and younger members of our communities. A lot of people feel uncomfortable with armed and uniformed police officers around them. And so we welcome Goal to March, but we would prefer that you did not march in your uniforms and with your sidearms on your persons. Goal represented that to the public in their statement as Goal is being banned. When the fact is that Goal would have been perfectly welcome to wear Goal t-shirts, wear Goal hats, march behind a Goal banner that makes it very clear that these are members of the NYPD, that they are out proud LGBT members of law enforcement. So it's not a matter of hiding their identification with law enforcement. That doesn't seem to be what HOP was trying to do, but that's the way that Goal tried to characterize it because they want to preserve their privileged position of being able to march in uniform because they actually had to fight the NYPD for the right to do that. How do you think this will work out? How should it work out? They made this decision to make this announcement this year when they're not actually having a parade. So the upshot of that is that anything can happen between now and next year. J.W. Walker is with the Reclaim Pride Coalition, marching on Pride Sunday, June 27th. And starting today, New Yorkers can now eat indoors without worrying about a dining curfew. It's a major milestone for restaurants still recovering from the pandemic. Previously, bars and restaurants had to close at midnight. The curfew was initially set for 10 p.m. and then was extended to 11 p.m. in February. It's been midnight since March. The curfew for all catered events is also lifted. But there are more curfews in New York City to report on. Washington Square Park will close earlier than usual next weekend due to what the NYPD is calling reckless behavior taking place inside the iconic park at night. The park will close at 10 p.m. on Friday, Saturday and Sunday night instead of its usual midnight closing time. Police say additional officers will be present to close the park and that the decision to move the closing time will be viewed reviewed on an ongoing basis. In a statement, the NYPD said the decision was made in part to quote, sometimes violent groups who refuse to leave the park and engaged in disorderly behavior. The NYPD goes on to say the behavior included jumping on vehicles, making threats to officers, throwing objects such as bottles and other objects at police. The decision for a curfew in Washington Square Park comes a month after a group holding a annual uh, Regular concerts at Thompson Square Park for many years was barred from using the park for two years, allegedly because some in the audience failed to wear masks. And that's some of the news for Monday, May 31st, 2021, Memorial Day. The news is produced Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.